Hey folks, welcome to the Adventure Sports Podcast. I'm your host, Mason. Today, I am so excited about this because Ben is somebody I've admired from afar for a handful of years now. Ever since watching his film, Unbranded, or the film he was featured in, I have pointed people to that film to show them, tell them this is what the American West looks like. So if you haven't been to places like the Grand Canyon, the Rocky Mountains, the deserts down in Mexico, Western Texas, all that, New Mexico, watch this film. It's absolutely gorgeous. And what it's about, it's about four college friends who all get out of school, cowboys essentially from Texas, take 16 wild horses and ride them from Mexico all the way to Canada. And they're going through the most beautiful places you can imagine. The story is unbelievable. It's a coming-of-age story, but they're also raising awareness about the wild horses that are all throughout the American West that the government has to frequently round up and and do something with. And so the effort with this film was to get those horses that they have to round up every year to, to be adopted and to show that they are useful. They can be useful horses and they don't have to be slaughtered or exterminated in other ways. And so it was an amazing story about conservation and about the ethics of certain practices and whatnot. It it was awesome. I just love the film. I've showed it and shared it with so many people. And so when I had the chance to interview Ben about this, uh, I, I, I just jumped on it. But what Ben has been doing, this story that came out in 2015, has essentially shaped his entire career. It launched his film career, and now he has made, gosh, a dozen or more, dozens of short films all about wildlife and nature and conservation, uh, adventure, but also some feature films. One, The River and the Wall, which was an expedition along the U.S.-Mexico border, talking about the issue of, of building a border wall or not and the implications of it. It was an amazing story, and that was in 2019. And then most recently, he came out with Deep in the Heart. It's a blue-chip nature documentary, and what that means is a documentary that is so well done and so beautiful and so such amazing storytelling that it's like, you know, above the rest. So uh, great examples are Planet Earth, Blue Planet, those big budget, beautiful, long, you know, it, it takes years to produce these amazing documentaries about usually the entire planet. Well, Ben decided to do one about his home state of Texas. I watched it when researching for this episode, and it is stunning. It shows things in Texas that I never knew existed, that you probably don't even know existed uh, in one state, and it has got me so fired up about how much is out there that we don't know about. So this is kind of unique for our uh, our talk here. You know, it's a lot more about the filmmaking and the art of it, it, it as well as his trajectory and, and career, but... What I'm finding personally, I'm sure what a lot of y'all are finding, and I know this is super long, so I apologize, uh, is that as we do more and more adventures, we realize the landscapes and the animals that we interact with, uh, they're not just there in the sense of expected to be there, it's guaranteed to be there. It takes somebody somewhere, constant maintenance and constant advocacy to conserve that land and also to protect those animals. So as I do more and more adventures, I realize more and more the implications and how amazing it is we actually have land to do these adventures on. 
and how much we need people to care about this and vote for this kind of stuff and to protect these places. That's why we have national parks in the first place, state parks, uh, BLM land, uh, wildlife management areas. Like all that exists because someone said we need to protect this. So I'm finding it harder and harder to do adventures without also saying, okay, what can I do now to help make ensure this place stays wild or these animals are stay protected and Ben's doing that really well. So balancing adventure and conservation and storytelling is a beautiful thing. So uh, super excited to talk to Ben. If you want to find out more, go to finnandfurfilms.com. That's his company, Finn and Fur Films. And uh, yeah, they have some amazing, amazing pieces. And uh, yeah, without further ado, let's go ahead and jump in. Hey folks, you heard a little bit about Ben's story in the intro, but now we've got the man himself on the call, Ben Masters. How you doing? Doing pretty good, Mason. It's a beautiful day here in Texas. How are you? Well, you, you kind of took my first question from me. My first question is always, where are you coming from? And oftentimes this isn't home for people where they're coming from because they're out on an adventure. But if it is the same place, where, where are you from and where's home for you? From Amarillo originally and then lived in Bozeman for a bit. And then now I'm down in Austin, Texas. We've been here for about four years, five years. I've got a film production company and my wife works in the emergency room. Oh, that's awesome, man. Yeah. So I, you must be there in Austin right now or, or somewhere. It's It looks nice and warm. Yeah. It's been a pretty warm winter so far. So I'm here in Texas right now. Oh, that's awesome. So born and raised in Texas, had an amazing adventure soon after college when you were, uh, I think it was 2013 that you got some Mustangs and took to to Canada pretty much. And that is how I found out about you. I had just biked that portion or that route, almost essentially the same route, not quite the same, but a lot of the similar things. And it, your film was my way of telling people, you want to see what it looked like out there. Watch this film, Unbranded. I had done it maybe the year before you had done Unbranded or the year it came out. And that was like my way of showing people how that those areas looked and what that experience was like. And your experience was obviously many more layers to it. Tell us about where, where did the idea for that come about? Was that from you? Was that from somebody else? How did that even get started, that, that story about Unbranded? I think that kind of started after my freshman year at college got a job as a horse wrangler at this ranch in Estes Park Colorado and I kind of worked my way up from being the poop shoveler up to you know taking out these pack trips these multi-day pack trips into Rocky Mountain National Park and surrounding areas and that was my gateway drug into exploring public lands and I remember just looking at the map and being like, well, I want to go there and there and there and kind of looking at the whole state of Colorado, you know, seeing this connectivity of these different national forests and parks and stumbled into the continental divide trail, which, you know, being from Texas where we don't have a lot of public lands, that was just this big appeal that you could still walk or hike or ride a horse, you know, across an entire state without having to, really open very many fences across very many roads and that stuck with me following summer uh talked two of my buddies to drop out of college and we adopted these wild horses and trained them for a few months and then we did this pack trip the the continental divide trail 
pretty much. We had some deviations off the off the actual official route. That was a 2010, so I was like 20. Good gracious. When we did that trip, it was just one of those life-changing experiences where you kind of think about like time, purpose, and kind of what you want to get out of life. And it's it's rare to, you know, have months, five months on end of just kind of watching these landscapes roll by. And in my, in my opinion, horseback is the best way to do that. You may be partial to your bicycles, but yeah, it changed my life. And, you know, we had adopted those Mustangs primarily because we we're, you know, a bunch of broke 20 year olds and didn't really have cash to get good horses. But it was the right choice to make because those wild horses that, that we adopted and trained, you know, they had grown up in a mountainous terrain. We're used to traveling through hard country and, you know, had good strong feet and they proved to be just these amazing travel companions and, and animals for a long distance ride. And after that journey happened, I kind of got more and more fascinated about the horse aspect of the Mustangs and decided to do another trip, uh, you know, again, a, across the country, but to try to document it and to, to make a film. And I didn't really know anything about filmmaking at that point in time in my career. So I asked this film director named Phil Baraboo out of Bozeman, Montana, if he would be interested in it. He was like, yeah, let's, let's try to make this thing happen. We don't have any cash. And we ended up doing a Kickstarter to get some funding for a documentary and did the journey again, filmed it and followed that whole process of training the horses and then riding, you know, through Arizona, Utah, Idaho, Wyoming, Montana. And it was a amazing experience again that really opened a, a lot of doors for me in my life. You know, I can't thank Bill and the entire crew for, for doing that with me enough. I mean, it was just a really phenomenal experience. And the film turned out a whole lot better than I thought it would have. Wow. So what, what made you want to film the experience? Was it, did you feel like that was a missed opportunity or something from that first adventure you did that, that shorter one where it was like, Oh man, people need to see this. What, why, what gave you the foresight to say that this one specifically has to be captured? Well, I think there was two things, you know, one of them was just the public lands aspect of it. I think that it's pretty amazing that today in the year 2022 with all of the human beings on the planet and all of the private property and all of the forces that exist, that there are still trails that will take you for weeks on end through these incredible backcountry places. That's, that's yours. I mean, it's public land and, you know, coming from a state, Texas, that, that doesn't have that. It really just, frankly, blew my mind. So, you know, woven into to unbranded is this this public lands, the importance of public lands message into it, but also, you know, wanting to get a lot of these horses adopted and to dive into that into that issue was really important to me after that film. Cause I mean, you you ride on a horse for five months and it's impossible not to just grow a tremendous amount of respect for that animal and then to learn that, you know, there's thousands of horses just like that that are sitting around locked up and holding pins for really the rest of their lives with a terrible quality of life can't help but want to try to get some more of those 
those animals adopted out and get people hooked up with some good riding horses. Oh man, that's awesome. Yeah. T- Texas, one of the lowest percentages of any state with public lands, and that's mostly due to ranches. So it, thankfully that doesn't mean it's developed land, but it isn't necessarily accessible for anyone to go enjoy. And so it's a slightly different reason than a lot of these other states that are mostly private land like Rhode Island or Connecticut. You know what I mean? It's, it's, it's a, it, thankfully, it's not because of development, but it would be a challenge and it would be pretty eye-opening, I'm sure, to go to some of these other states where the vast majority of the land is public. Yeah, I mean, just the logistics of piecing together the country would be too much. You'd be, you know, riding county roads. Right, right. Absolutely. So you were in school studying biology. What did you want to do before you came across film and came across the power of filmmaking? Was it, was it, you know, be a biologist, study some sort of specific animal? Like what, what was in your mind before all this, before Unbranded? I mean, before I rode the Colonel Levi Trail, I was in the business school and dropped out of that real fast. I was like, I don't want to be stuck in the city. Uh, transferred over to the wildlife school at, at Texas A&M. And I mean, I've always been really fascinated by soil science and ranch management and it's kind of geology and the history of the world. And, and obviously wildlife, you know, grew up hunting and fishing and was studying. Uh, I assumed that I would get into, you know, wildlife research, maybe work for a state agency, maybe work for a private ranch, just a wildlife biologist. And that was kind of the track that I was heading on. I, I, I did manage a ranch in South Texas for three hunting seasons and then spent a semester down in Kingsville under their ranch management program. So that was definitely the path that I headed on. But there was this big opportunity after Unbranded to get to to make, you know, some more films because people saw that. And, you know, I was a part of that, although I was not shooting it, although I did not edit it, I got to help produce it, help fundraise it, help, uh, release it. So I had this leg up and then following that, I, you know, started getting more into the cinematography, more into the directing I started making quite a few short films that were about conservation issues here in Texas that were near and dear to my heart and growing up. And I've kind of been doing that ever since then. I guess I've, I directed my first short film in 2014 so like eight years ago and have been making short films since then i've probably done about 30 or so short films and uh have directed two features oh that's awesome so yeah man an adventure i mean it's it's probably you know when you did that unbranded and i I will say anybody that wants to watch an amazing documentary is that something you're still proud of i don't know if views have changed or you, you know you know how we you know how musicians sometimes don't love their biggest hits anymore? Man, I um, <laughs> how do you feel about Unbranded? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that help make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. I am immensely proud of that film. Immensely proud of that film. Should it be. was incredibly difficult to pull off. It was... You know, at the time, I thought I had all the answers and it was all about the horses and it was all about the land and what Phil was able to do, the director was able to do with that movie was to really 
see something there that I was, you know, honestly too immature to, to see at the point in time. And that was, you know, kind of a coming of age story. It was a bunch of 20 year old kids. And, you know, whenever you're 20, you you think, you know, everything. And, you know, I have 10 years now since I kind of look back on it with a little bit of retrospective and yeah, you know, the, the, the human dynamic in that film is what I think makes it somewhat of a like cult classic in the trail riding community and horsebacking community. And yeah, I'm, I'm incredibly proud of that movie. So, yeah. So, so some maturity there. Um, I was just asking, cause I, I'm getting ready to, uh, to basically tell people to go watch it. And, and, and as long as you're still proud of it, I'm still absolutely happy to, to recommend it. Yeah. It's a fun movie. <laughs> we'll link it all to the show notes, but it's, it's an amazing movie. It's, it's definitely a coming of age story, character driven, the folks that ride, the horses involved, the scenery, it just, it's beautiful. It's beautifully written. There's so much that goes wrong. What's a story from that film that didn't make the cut in the film or from the adventure itself? Is there anything that just sticks out in your mind? That's like, man, that, that didn't make it, but that was, that was quite an experience. Yeah. The one that really sticks out to me is whenever we were first starting off the journey, we were getting our horses shot. And there was this crusty old horseshoer down in Carrizo Springs, deep South Texas named Carly Wells and, uh, called up Carly and said, you know, we've got these 12 Mustangs that been riding for about a month and a half. And, you know, these were wild horses just, you know, a couple months ago, a couple of years ago, and we need to get some shoes on all of them. And first thing he responded with was, yeah, there ain't never been a horse that I couldn't put a shoe on. <laughs> Well, we've got 16 of them. <laughs> and uh, yeah, this, this poor fellow, he shows up and just gets to work. I mean, it's freaking hot. The sun's beating down on him. And he's an older man. He's, you know, 65 years old or so, chugging coffee. And he gets like four or five hours into it. And it's around noon or so. And, you know, I don't know how to shoe a horse. I, I, I can do it. I can like tack a shoe on and keep it on with some nails. But as far as like trimming it out and making it functionally sound, you know, that's, that's, that's an artisan that is able to do that. And anyways, it's just beating down hot. And I asked him like, Carly, do you need to take a break? Do you need some water? Nah, it's just going to keep getting hotter. <laughs> and, uh, he was underneath this horse Ford, Ford Mustang, a Ford kind of pulled back on him was trying to get away from Carly and Carly started fighting this horse and they kind of got into this wrestling match. And it's, it's, it's not good to, to pick a fight with the horse whenever you're shooing, you almost always lose, but he was getting all bent out of shape and he got the horse's foot underneath him again with tacking on these nails and he stands up and his face is just gray. And then he collapses onto the ground. Oh Lord. Just, just collapses, just falls to the ground. No, nobody's home. And Ben Thamer, one of the guys that did the ride with us, you know, he, he went, he ran over to Carly and, and looked at him and it's like screamed at him, like Carly, get up, Carly, get up. And his eyes were closed. He opened up his eyes and like, there was no motion in his eyes or anything. And his face just, you know, lost all of its color immediately. And he went down and put his finger up in his carotid artery and couldn't find a pulse and he had a heart attack and you know died just like in front of us right there 
so we kind of had this moment of, you know, oh shit, like what do we do? And it, you know, looking back on it, we all sprang to action really fast. His son, James, that was there began doing CPR. Then Thamer asked James, like, you know, does he have any heart problems? And James said, yeah, he's got, got some nitro in his truck. Like go get that. And then we'll, we'll drop some in his mouth. So we, you know, did that opened up his passageway, began doing CPR. James is pumping on his, on his heart, trying to keep some blood circulating. I ran to the ranch house, hopped on the phone, called 911. I was like, Hey, we just had a heart attack. Like we need to get a helicopter out here now. And helicopter or, or, you know, the 911 operator was like, all right, we're, we're going to get somebody as fast as you can, but, you know, realize that you're 30, 40 minutes away from the nearest helicopter plus two and a half hours from an ambulance. And you just need to accept those realities. And Tom Glover, he was also there, one of the other riders, and he had just gotten done taking a first aid class that was a prerequisite for his job. He was working in construction business in Houston and was like, AED, AED, I got to, I got to find an AED. I ended up running up to a different building and looked inside of the closet and saw an AED box. And the ranch manager for that ranch a month prior to that had gotten the physical exam and the doctor had noticed some like unusual heart movement and suggested to him that they needed to buy an AED at the ranch. It had just arrived and it was still new in the box. And Tom miraculously found this thing, ran it out to Carly. And by now, like some serious time had passed. You know, there had been like probably two and a half minutes, which, you know, it's not okay for your, for your brain to go two and a half minutes without any oxygen and you know carly was still over there and by this point in time like his sternum and ribs were all broken and and you know carly was just sitting there just like trying to keep that heartbeat just trying to force blood you know to keep going through his veins and tom got there ripped open the box and placed these two sensors on Carly's chest and, you know, credit to this AED machine. Like it was very obvious on how it worked. Like you busted open. It was like step one, you know, take off the pad, step two, place them on the chest. Here's where you put them, you know, step three hit go. And then it was like reading heart monitor, reading heart monitor, shock advised, step away, shock advised, hit the red button. And there was this moment where we were all standing around Carly and we were hearing this like shock advised and looking at this man. And I had this very visual memory of this fly landing on his eyeball and just kind of sitting there. And there was like no motion at all. Oh, geez. And Tom hit the red button and it, it, it hit the shock. And, you know, we saw Carly kind of like gasp a little bit. And then from like the, the, depths of his lungs we just see his diaphragm rise and he takes in this breath of air that lasted probably 40 seconds and then we like saw this like little twitch come into his cheek and like this little tingle in his fingers and we slowly saw his skin go from like gray and blue to you know pink again and got to sit there and watch this man 
come back to life from the dead. <laughs> Good Lord. Like, you know, 20 minutes later, the helicopter lands. About the time the helicopter lands, you know, his eyes are opening up and looking around at us like, what just happened to me? And his son was like, hey, Carly, you only got three shoes on that horse. <laughs> and oh my god he like kind of looked over at him but he couldn't talk because you know all of his ribs were broken stuff and he just died and come back to life and anyways they ended up putting him on a stretcher sent him up to San Antonio and got him all stabilized and he went back to shoeing horses after that so crazy story but anyways I, I caught basically I caught up with him a few years later and asked him what he took away from that whole experience. And he said, you know, pretty much just make sure to go fishing with your friends every chance you get and spend time with your grandkids, which I thought was a healthy way to look at it. But sure enough, man, he, he made it through and, and it was credit to Tom for going and thinking so fast on, you know, needing an AED, but we were able to save that man's life that day. And that was something from the, from that experience that I'll never forget. And, I tell that story every chance I get because, you know, you see those AEDs and you never know if they're going to get used, but I got to see one save somebody's life. So I always suggest people consider getting one. <laughs> yeah. Good gracious, Ben. That was, I did not expect that. I did not know where that was going to go. I was like, this guy just died. When you said the, 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 the fly on the eye, that's, yeah, I've heard those stories where that's kind of the sign or that's when people realize nothing, nothing's going on. Dude, that and that's all before the adventure itself. That's what we learn a lot on this show is that the the experiences, the the life-changing stories you get, the the memories, they often start before these things even happen. It's in the preparation. That's half the adventure a lot of times. That's half of the stories a lot of times and it sounds like that was the same for y'all. Yeah, that is not a good omen. Like you don't want to start your trip that way. No, no, no. No, <laughs> no that's not a it's not like a fun thing to 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 th- think about, but good lord, what an what an experience! I bet he never said that again. There's never been a horse <laughs> couldn't shoe. No, yeah, he, uh, he learned he learned his his uh he never said that. I'm sure. Yeah, oh that, was, that was crazy experience, crazy experience. And- Just to give folks an indication of, of the film and how epic it is. That I mean, if that story didn't make the cut, just imagine. The amount of stories and the amount of things that happened that did, uh, that's how good the film is. That's how just epic it is. And uh, and like you said, Ben, it, it opened up kind of a world to you, seeing the power of filmmaking. Were you surprised? You said you were surprised by how good that turned out. When did you realize that, wow, this is, was there a moment or was there just a compounding of moments that led you to think, wow, filmmaking, there's power in this? Probably the premiere night of that movie, Actually, no, I would say probably a mountain film. You know, we, we showed it at mountain film and there was like 800 people that came in and watched that movie and just seeing all the hands shoot up during the Q and a, all the folks that wanted to talk about public lands and wild horses and how we did it. I mean, it, it really impacted people. That movie did. It, it's, it, it sticks with them. You know, there's like a surprise ending. There's all this stuff that happens that you would never expect. And really, you know, got a lot of horses adopted, which was the goal of the film. And it's one of those deals where kind of you mix entertainment with advocacy and with information and you can really reach a lot of people and, you know, show folks 
maybe an opinion that they haven't heard or one that they disagree with and, and why those folks disagree with them or see things in new lights. And, you know, that's the magic of movies is it transports you into this different mentality where you can hear music and sounds and different visuals and meet these different characters and meet these people. It's the most powerful form of media that there is. And, you know, if you look at history, one of the most powerful people that existed in the last hundred years saw the potential of film and used it for great evil. Like the first person to truly see the power of movies was Adolf Hitler. And it was his film team that pretty much convinced, you know, his country that this horrible evil needed to be done in order to, you know, create a, a better Germany and, and what he believed the, the right Germans. It's an incredibly powerful form of me. With that comes a lot of responsibility whenever you decide to tell a story that, you know, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands or millions of people will see. Like, you can't, you can't mess that up. Yeah, no kidding. Man, unbelievable. So, you know, coming of age story and I, I'd say that's the perspective I saw it through as well, unbranded. And that led you into making, doing what you do now, launching Finn and Fur Films, which I presume came after that. I know with Unbranded, the trailer, Finn and Fur Films is in there, but I feel like that was done maybe afterwards, you tell me. No, it was done beforehand. It was done before. Finn and Fur was was found beforehand. My brother was a lawyer and was like, hey, man, you need a company, so you're not (laughs) personally liable for all this, so... I got a company made, and they're like, what do you call it? And I was like, well, I like to hunt and fish. It's called Fit and Fur Films. Fit and Fur, baby. And uh, here we are. Here we are. Wow, that's awesome. That's 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 uh, good foresight by your brother, you said? Yeah. That's really cool. Well, so, you know, it, it, it led to this career. It led to this, what you're doing now. What it seems like on the outside, and maybe this is recently recency bias, and you tell me, but, it, you know, at launch with this amazing coming-of-age story, this documentary, and you've been making, you know, dozens of films since then, in the last, uh, since, since that adventure. To me, it feels like this culmination to your most recent project, Deep in the Heart. Uh, like all this work, all this effort, all the, these interests and topics, you know, there's obviously highlights there and big stories to talk about, but, but it, this really feels like a big deal, what you did with Deep in the Heart. Does it feel that way to you? Like all, all this has, has, has come to this? I know you'll obviously do things in the future, but right now, Deep in the Heart feels like such a big deal and such a big thing to talk about and such an important thing to talk about that it's kind of exciting to talk to you right now. Is that the way you view it? Man, I, I do. I do view it that way. And it's kind of a love letter to my home state, I guess is what you could call it deep in the heart because I've had the incredibly good fortune to travel across Texas and, you know, making all these different short films about desert sheep or water conservation or ocelots or pronghorn up in the panhandle. I've kind of gotten to go around and and see a lot of the state. And then, you know, growing up in the state, you know, we'd always visit different parts and yeah, I, I would say that it's, I think it's probably the most proud thing that I've done in my life to date. And I think it's going to do a lot of good for a long time. And we'll certainly, you know, like you can't watch that movie and not love Texas's wild places. It is impossible. Yeah. And I think that that's the first step in conservation is loving a place. hundred percent. The the thing with Texas is like, there's just so many people that are moving here 
there's so many forces that are just trying to urge development as fast as we possibly can. Yeah, ranches just getting chopped to pieces left and right. You know, we're looking at the state going from 30 million people to 50 million people by the time my two-year-old graduates college. And it's such an important place from a wildlife perspective because, you know, if you take a look at North America and you look at how everything kind of funnels down through Texas in order to get up and down the hemisphere or up and down the continent. And, you know, we've got the Rockies to the west of Texas. We've got the Gulf to the east. So everything that migrates kind of goes through Texas that's, you know, east of the Rockies and it's going to spill up into, you know, Canada and the Northeast. So like from a bird migration perspective, from a bat migration, from a butterfly perspective, from winter habitat perspective, you know, everywhere is important, but Texas is like especially important. And there hasn't ever really been a film that really like celebrated this amazing state that we have and it's like natural features texas tends to kind of get caught up with conversations about you know political extremism or almost like ridiculous spoofs or how big is your hat or you know you have an f650 or an f850 kind of thing and i think both in the state and outside the state there should be more acknowledgement of how freaking awesome our wildlife is and how we have an opportunity to make it even better. And we should do that. This film is, like you said, uh, a love letter to Texas showing the vastest. I mean, Texas is so big that parts of it look like the swamps of Louisiana. Other parts look are literally the Rocky Mountains. There's so much going on from a diversity point of view of the landscapes, the wildlife. To see this trailer... I look at some of these scenes and I'm like, there's no way that's in Texas. And by the way, I've biked across Texas twice, both of them around <laughs> 10 days long to get from side to side oh, solo. I mean, I've seen a lot of Texas at a pretty slow pace and there were so many scenes in this that I was like, how is that in Texas? I had no idea that was Texas and coming from Florida. I, I know what that's like, like no, knowing, like showing people things they didn't really realize were here. But I was I was envisioning that for Texas it's going to be even grander. Surely the size and right where you're placed in the continent, you're kind of at this convergence of so many landscapes from the true Wild West to the swamps with the gators to beautiful deserts, mountains. I mean, there's so much going on. Did you in this pursuit and also coral reefs stuff like that in this pursuit of this film and, and capturing a lot of these scenes? Do you feel like you? found yourself surprised by what you were seeing in your own home state that you might not realize was there or realize was a, a part of it? Yeah, definitely. And just for, you know, folks that are listening, what we're talking about is a movie that we released earlier this year called Deep in the Heart and it's narrated by Matthew McConaughey. It's about 100 minutes long. And it's similar to Planet Earth in style in which you have like these wildlife characters and these behaviors and they have have a narrator kind of driving the story. Similar to Planet Earth, a lot of these like classic films. And those are, by the way, called blue chip films. Yeah, blue chip natural history is the name of the of the genre. And you know, our film has 12 different wildlife sequences across the state in these different ecosystems. But to answer your question, Mason, yeah, I mean, 
it was a really neat way to kind of rediscover my home state because I lived in Bozeman for five years and it wasn't until I moved back that I kind of reappreciate Texas and kind of getting to travel around and see these different nooks and crannies. And certainly, I mean, it, it was an incredible opportunity. I mean, before we started researching that film, did not know we had coral reefs. That was new to me. And it wasn't until we went and dove out there and jumped off a boat and looked down and there was a manta ray underneath me, you know, gliding over these massive brain corals the size of a pickup that it like really hit home that, you know, Texas goes from great plains all the way to these like tropical reefs and everything in between. So yeah, it was a really neat opportunity to rediscover my homestead. It was, it was cool. What brought you back to Texas? I think what brought me back, one was my wife got this really great job doing a fellowship in Austin. So she works in the emergency room and uh, is a PA there. So she had a great job. Family brought me back. And then also, you know, if you look up there in Montana and Wyoming and Idaho, there's a lot of phenomenal conservation work going on. There's a ton of public lands. There's a lot of really great storytellers that live there. Texas, you know, we have a lot of conservation organizations. We have a lot of stuff, good, good stuff going on, but there's not a lot of storytellers here. And there's a lot of opportunity to do more for wildlife and conservation in this state. So I felt almost an obligation to my home to, to move back and try to put, you know, some of my effort and some of my talent into a place that I thought I could make a difference. Oh, that's awesome, man. Feel the same way about this is so crazy. It's some cool parallels going on. You were surprised by some of the things you saw. Tell us, you know, I asked you that question about unbranded. Tell us a story from deep in the heart that didn't make the cut or something because it wasn't a character driven story as far as human character. That is, tell us about some of the things that happened behind the scenes where things either went wrong or some of those things you'll never forget that happened when making this film. Oh man. I think, <laughs> I think one of my favorites is, uh, our producer, Jay Clayberg. He is not a scuba diver at all, but he also gets FOMO really bad. And he's one of those people that's annoyingly good at everything that he does. Like literally everything he runs 50 mile races can go, you know, bicycle for freaking ever. He's just one of those, one of those guys. And, like secretly we all kind of want him to fail every once in a while just to like see that he's human, but he's not, he's superhuman. So, so we were doing this, this coral spawn shoot and it happens on the eighth day after the full moon in August every year, shortly after nightfall. And the reason why is you've got, you know, all of these corals that are out there in this reef and they time their spawning event to where, like these little gametes and like reproductive packages that they release, they all float away at one point in time and they kind of overwhelm the predators that converge upon them and, and feed. So we get out there and we, we start filming this coral reef and Jay's not a scuba diver. Like he'd never dove at nighttime before. And the way that it works is you jump off the spoke and you sink down to 80 feet and that's the coral reef. So it's intimidating to, to, to leave the boat at night and just kind of sink into the deep blue. Oh yeah. I mean, I, I would never do that. Yeah. So I only had about like an hour to, to actually film the spawn before it, it ended. And that was like, that was our opportunity. It was done. So we had to go, we had to get our wides, we had to get our mediums, we had to get our tights. 
And as we're sinking down, we just see this amazing, I, I, it looked to me like a snowstorm or a blizzard where you see all of this coral spawn in the water column. We're like, oh my God, it is happening. And as we continue to drop down, we see all these big brain corals and all these coral reefs slowly materialize into view. And sure enough, all of them are just opening up and releasing this the spawning event. It was just just mind-boggling. I mean, I, I was so just overwhelmed visually that I had to take a minute for myself and just be like, all right, I'm, I'm here to work. Like, I got to get these shots. So decompress all my air or let all the air out of my PCD sink like a rock sitting here on the sand. And my job was to film the tights with the 100 macro of, you know, these little coral spawns coming out of the coral reef. And Jay's job was to stand above me with the light and I'm sitting there and I'm filming and I'm trying to get these shots. And, you know, there's like a little bit of wishy-washy with the waves and I'm going back and forth and I'm trying to adjust my settings and trying to catch the focus and trying to frame and, trying to do all of these things and my light keeps bouncing around and it's not like I can communicate to him. I'm like, rrr, 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 rrr. <laughs> and my light's like leaving me and it's coming back and it's leaving me. And I look up and Jay is like 30 feet above me. And there is this big shark that is circling around him. <laughs> it's like this 10 foot long sandbar shark that's circling him. And just, you know, it's just checking him out. But like, you know, whenever you're not used to diving and there's a shark circling you, you automatically assume that it's going to rip your head off, despite the fact that there's like never been a shark accident in Texas ever. So, you know, I put some air in my BCD, I float up to him. And I like, I grabbed him by the shoulders and I looked at him in the eyes through our goggles and I just like shook him and I like pointed down. He's just got like the fear of God in his eyes. And I looked down at his wrist and he had blown through like a thousand PSI and we had just gotten down to the bottom. So I pointed at his watch and I was just like, calm down. And just like took a minute to like calm him down. The shark's just going around us. So we sink back down. and uh, He ends up holding the light for me. And this stinking shark did not leave us the entire shoot. And he's sitting there and he's holding the light. We ended up getting like 15 usable tights and mediums and over like, you know, seven, eight minutes. And I go back up. I look at his wrist and he's got like 400 PSI. And he's just sitting there just huffing air. And uh, I was like, all right, here we go. So we jetted up or he didn't jet up to the top. We went up, we decompressed, we got up to the top, waited our time, threw on some new tanks, came back down and it was done. Coral spawn was over. Like that was it. And we got it. We got our shots. We got everything that we needed to tell that sequence. And we captured that like incredibly precious moment in time. But it was just like the worst timing for that shark to show up. <laughs> Jeez, man. Unbelievable. The adventure behind the behind the scenes stuff that could be its own Film, I'm sure. Oh, I wish I had a story. picture of his face. Because <laughs> <laughs> it's just a oh, shark. Man. And like, if you spend time underwater, it's not a big deal. I mean, it's just a shark. But if you're not wow. used to it, like, fuck, it's a shark. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, dude. I mean, think about that, man. You've got bighorn sheep, elk, gators, sharks, all in the same state. I mean, it's unbelievable the variety of 
megafauna. You're working with bears. So much you got to look out for, but so much you got to tell the story about that you have to be in these environments. I mean, it's unbelievable, the variety in one place. It's awesome. Thanks, man. I'm glad you're a fan of the film. I'm, I'm, we're super proud of it and a testament to my team. I, I'm, I'm lucky to get to work with some of the finest filmmakers and humans on planet Earth. I know that you... I, I know that reception's probably been incredible. Um, you had Matthew McConaughey as the uh, as the narrator, which it just had to be awesome to work with. A true Texan as well. Like I, I can't honestly think of anybody better than yeah, that. I don't great think job. anyone knows anybody better. He did a great job and on the performance. You had some awesome, awesome feedback. But you did have feedback or folks reaching out that were really upset about this film. Was that surprising at all? Let's take a quick message break and hear from the folks that helped make this show possible. That is plenty of that for now. Let's get back into the episode. Uh, not really. I mean, I feel like anytime something does well, you always have some people that try to poo-poo on it. But I mean, for the most part, I would say 99.99% of people who watched it loved it. And I was really proud of that because, you know, we had... Uh, like it was really well received by the hunting community. It was really well received by the environmental community. There was a lot of landowners that thanked us for, you know, like acknowledging the contribution that private land stewardship plays with conservation. So, you know, there was a couple of people that took particular offense to the mountain lion scene. And I mean, I, I can kind of understand where they're coming from, but like, come on in Texas right now, it's, perfectly reasonable or perfectly legal to kill as many mountain lions as you want without any seasons, without any bag limits. You can just leave them in the traps for like multiple days until they die. And we've got the worst mountain lion regulations on planet earth. So, you know, through the film, we acknowledged like this is happening with our mountain lions and in a state where we're having exponential fragmentation and population growth. If we don't put a management plan together, like we might lose that species. And that's a very valid concern, especially for the South Texas population. So, you know, there's some people that took issue with that, but that's that's not a common perspective at all. For the most part, it's been really well received. Yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah, that wasn't a knock or, or yeah, the vast majority of people are going to love it and have loved it and supported it. And there, were some, there was some history made with this film. You were the first person... To that known person to catch ocelot babies on film. Correct me if I'm wrong about those details, but that was a that was a really big moment, and that you were the first. That was one of the best days of my life. Honestly, it was was setting up those camera traps and checking them, and you know, looking through the footage and realizing that we had we'd actually gotten ocelot kittens because you know prior to this film there had never been any good ocelot footage taken in the wild or at least like with with professional cameras there's been like some uh like research science cameras that have you know been photographing ocelots but but never any video and you know that was always a dream like maybe we would get kittens but we never actually thought it would be plausible and just the good camera trap fate and god smiled upon us and we were able to tell this you know truly awesome story of of this mother ocelot and what you know, is required for her to successfully raise a kitten and just got lucky and managed to get a predation scene, managed to get this really sad scene where she's searching for a lost kitten. Yeah, it was, it was really remarkable. Unbelievable, man. 
you know, this, this project's out and the next steps as you're doing is, is just promoting it, getting the word out there, letting this be, I mean, I, I imagine trying to get every classroom in Texas to show this and, and make it, you know, required watching and, and just every politician, every decision maker, everybody in Texas to see and, and elsewhere. Have you even given thought to what's next for you or what kind of projects you're going to work on next or kind of adventures you want to go on? Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. We got two feature films and six short films in production right now. So we're, we're booked through 2025. Good gracious. What can you tell us about them? Nothing, nothing at all. <laughs> okay. Other than when they come out, it'll be worth going to watch. It'll be worth going to watch. And uh, I presume Texas is somehow involved. Yeah, well, uh, maybe we're, not. We're though. branching out too. I mean, you got to remember okay. I got my roots out West. So, uh, but yeah, it'll be uh, wildlife adventure and conservation based. That's awesome, man. You know, for for anybody, there's a lot of folks listening to this show that are in college, maybe exploring some of their first adventures or coming of age. We hear from a lot of people are who are out on adventures right now, doing something like you're doing with them branded. You know, may, maybe longer even, or maybe just shorter, or they're starting to realize there's this world of of things out there they didn't realize were out there, but when they were kids and now they want to pursue this new thing they're doing, whether that's, whether they know exactly what's coming or, or, or not any advice for folks that are taking the path less traveled. Man, I've just got to say, I, I have met quite a few people who have done, you know, pretty big journeys in their life. And, you know, for me, it was a five month horseback journey but whether it's kayaking or bicycling or, or hiking, I don't believe I've met anyone who has ever regretted it or looked back at that period of time and didn't consider it to be one of their proudest and greatest chapters in their life. Nobody regrets hiking the Continental Divide Trail or the Appalachian Trail or paddling the Mississippi from source to sea or the Yukon, or for me, riding horses across the country. And there's always a lot of reasons to not do it because expenses of partners, of boyfriends, of girlfriends, of somebody needing to take care of the family farm, of needing to graduate on time, of needing to secure that job offer while it happens, uh, you know, worry about safety, you know, your travel buddy quit on you. Like there's never a good time to take off five months and go do something like that. And you just got to get started. Just get started. Like it's so that's the hardest part of both the horseback trip I did in 2010 and the one I did in 2013 was, was just, looking at myself in the mirror and saying, I am going to do this despite all of the reasons not to do this. I am going to commit hard and I am going to get this done no matter what, even if my compadres quit, like I am going to get this done. And that's the mindset that I think you really have to go into it, especially if you're like me where like, you know, I grew up with, with two loving parents, but you know, they didn't, they don't have money to send me on adventures and stuff. Like you've got to pay for it yourself. It's hard. It's expensive. But I look back at my life and I'm only 34. So it's not like I'm 
like some grizzled sage, but yeah, you sound like one, but you're not one. I've got a mortgage. I got two kids. I'm 34. I've got a company. I've got like eight people that work for me. I can't take off for five months anymore. And I am so glad that I did do that whenever I was 20 and did do that whenever I was 25. And I've met a lot of people that like my dad included, like a, a, a lot of people that really wish that they had done something like that and kind of assumed that that opportunity would come up later on in life. And, and it never did. And I think that's really why Unbranded struck such a chord with so many folks is like everybody kind of wants to do something like that. And some people do it and they know how amazing it is, but everybody wishes that they, that they did that, like to take on that journey of, of, of self-discovery. So yeah, if you're thinking about doing it, I mean, just, just commit hard and don't look back. You never know where it might take you. It might well it might take you pretty deep in the heart. We know that. But Ben, yeah, thank thank you so much for joining us and just for telling us a little bit about not just your adventure story, but how you how you've learned to tell the story. It's really powerful. On this show, you know, we we stick with audio because we know people are listening while they're out there. But it is very impactful, more so, to sit down and visualize these things we're talking about and for this listenership, I know they do that whenever we have a guest that has something that can be experienced this way. So we're going to plug this and we can't wait to get it out there. And we hope Florida can have one. That's my home state. A lot of similarities to you. Spent a decade out West, came back, seeing it in a whole new way, whole new appreciation. And one day we'll have we'll have a, a blue chip film for the Florida experience. Yeah, man. Let me know. My business model is totally replicable. And you think I've got like some monopoly on intelligence and prowess, I can promise you that's not the case. Oh, I appreciate it. I don't have the track record as you. Hey, you did say just get started. So we'll see what we can do. Just get started. But thank you so much, Ben. All right. Thanks, Mason. Take care, my friend. First of all, thank you so much for listening. It means the world to us that you choose to listen to this show. If you'd like to help us further, you can leave a review on iTunes, share us with your friends, your family. It goes a long way to grow in the show. You can also support us financially through patreon.com slash adventure sports podcast. Link is in the show notes. And also, if you have an idea of who could be a good guest for the show, we're always looking for people to tell their story uh, about the outdoors or adventure. So if you know someone, please reach out. Email us at info at adventuresportspodcast.com. And until then, get out there and have some fun. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform, with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, 
according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.